Section 9 of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in June 2019. Chapter 6 A Preliminary Investigation. I suppose most excavators would confess to a feeling of awe, embarrassment almost when they break into a chamber closed and sealed by pious hands so many centuries ago. For the moment, time as a factor in human life has lost its meaning. Three thousand, four thousand years maybe have passed and gone since human feet last trod the floor on which you stand, and yet, as you note the signs of recent life around you, the half-filled bowl of mortar for the door, the blackened lamp, the finger-mark upon the freshly painted surface, the farewell garland dropped upon the threshold, you feel it might have been but yesterday. The very air you breathe, unchanged throughout the centuries, you share with those who laid the mummy to its rest. Time is annihilated by little intimate details such as these, and you feel an intruder. That is perhaps the first and dominant sensation, but others follow thick and fast, the exhilaration of discovery, the fever of suspense, the almost overmastering impulse, born of curiosity, to break down seals and lift the lids of boxes, the thought, pure joy to the investigator, that you are about to add a page to history, or solve some problem of research, the strained expectancy, why not confess it, of the treasure-seeker. Did these thoughts actually pass through our minds at the time, or have I imagined them since? I cannot tell. It was the discovery that my memory was blank, and not the mere desire for dramatic chapter-ending that occasioned this digression. Surely never before in the whole history of excavation had such an amazing sight been seen as the light of our torch revealed to us. The reader can get some idea of it by reference to the photographs on plates 16 to 20, but these were taken afterwards when the tomb had been opened and electric light installed. Let him imagine how they appeared to us, as we looked down upon them from our spy-hole in the blocked doorway, casting the beam of light from our torch, the first light that had pierced the darkness of the chamber for three thousand years, from one group of objects to another, in a vain attempt to interpret the treasure that lay before us. The effect was bewildering, overwhelming. I suppose we had never formulated exactly in our minds just what we had expected or hoped to see, but certainly we had never dreamed of anything like this, a room full, a whole museum full, it seemed, of objects, some familiar, but some the like of which we had never seen, piled one upon another in seemingly endless profusion. Gradually the scene grew clearer, and we could pick out individual objects. First, right opposite to us, we had been conscious of them all the while, but refused to believe in them, were three great gilt couches, their sides carved in the form of monstrous animals, curiously attenuated in body, as they had to be, to serve their purpose, but with heads of startling realism. Uncanny beasts enough to look upon at any time, seen as we saw them, 
their brilliant gilded surfaces picked out of the darkness by our electric torch as though by limelight their heads throwing grotesque distorted shadows on the wall behind them they were almost terrifying next on the right two statues caught and held our attention two life-sized figures of a king in black facing each other like sentinels gold kilted gold sandaled armed with mace and staff the protective sacred cobra upon their foreheads these were the dominant objects that caught the eye at first between them around them piled on top of them there were countless others exquisitely painted and inlaid caskets alabaster vases some beautifully carved in open-work designs strange black shrines from the open door of one a great gilt snake peeping out bouquets of flowers or leaves beds chairs beautifully carved a golden inlaid throne a heap of curious white oviform boxes staves of all shapes and designs beneath our eyes on the very threshold of the chamber a beautiful lotiform cup of translucent alabaster on the left a confused pile of overturned chariots glistening with gold and inlay and peeping from behind them another portrait of a king such were some of the objects that lay before us whether we noted them all at the time i cannot say for certain as our minds were in much too excited and confused a state to register accurately presently it dawned upon our bewildered brains that in all this medley of objects before us there was no coffin or trace of mummy and the much debated question of tomb or cash began to intrigue us afresh with this question in view we re-examined the scene before us and noticed for the first time that between the two black sentinel statues on the right there was another sealed doorway the explanation gradually dawned upon us we were but on the threshold of our discovery what we saw was merely an antechamber behind the guarded door there were to be other chambers possibly a succession of them and in one of them beyond any shadow of doubt in all his magnificent panoply of death we should find the pharaoh lying we had seen enough and our brains began to reel at the thought of the task in front of us we reclosed the hole locked the wooden grille that had been placed upon the first doorway left our native staff on guard mounted our donkeys and rode home down the valley strangely silent and subdued it was curious as we talked things over in the evening to find how conflicting our ideas were as to what we had seen each of us had noted something that the others had not and it amazed us next day to discover how many and how obvious were the things that we had missed naturally it was the sealed door between the statues that intrigued us most and we debated far into the night the possibilities of what might lie behind it a single chamber with the king's sarcophagus that was the least we might expect but why one chamber only why not a succession of passages and chambers leading in true valley style to an innermost shrine of all the burial chamber it might be so and yet in plan the tomb was quite unlike the others visions of chamber after chamber 
each crowded with objects like the one we had seen, passed through our minds and left us gasping for breath. Then came the thought of the plunderers again. Had they succeeded in penetrating this third doorway, seen from a distance it looked absolutely untouched, and, if so, what were our chances of finding the king's mummy intact? I think we slept but little, all of us, that night. Next morning, November 27th, we were early on the field, for there was much to be done. It was essential, before proceeding further with our examination, that we should have some more adequate means of illumination, so Calendar began laying wires to connect us up with the main lighting system of the valley. While this was in preparation, we made careful notes of the seal impressions upon the inner doorway and then removed its entire blocking. By noon everything was ready, and Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, Calendar, and I entered the tomb and made a careful inspection of the first chamber, afterwards called the antechamber. The evening before I had written to Mr. Engelbach, the chief inspector of the Antiquities Department, advising him of the progress of clearing and asking him to come over and make an official inspection. Unfortunately, he was at the moment in Kena on official business, so the local antiquities inspector, Ibrahim Effendi, came in his stead. By the aid of our powerful electric lamps, many things that had been obscure to us on the previous day became clear, and we were able to make a more accurate estimate of the extent of our discovery. Our first objective was naturally the sealed door between the statues, and here a disappointment awaited us. Seen from a distance, it presented all the appearance of an absolutely intact blocking, but close examination revealed the fact that a small breach had been made near the bottom, just wide enough to admit a boy or a slightly built man, and that the hole made had subsequently been filled up and resealed. We were not, then, to be the first. Here, too, the thieves had forestalled us, and it only remained to be seen how much damage they had had the opportunity, or the time, to effect. Our natural impulse was to break down the door and get to the bottom of the matter at once, but to do so would have entailed serious risk of damage to many of the objects in the antechamber, a risk which we were by no means prepared to face. Nor could we move the objects in question out of the way, for it was imperative that a plan and complete photographic record should be made before anything was touched, and this was a task involving a considerable amount of time, even if we had had sufficient plant available, which we had not, to carry it through immediately. Reluctantly we decided to abandon the opening of this inner sealed door until we had cleared the antechamber of all its contents. By doing this we should not only ensure the complete scientific record of the outer chamber, which it was our duty to make, but should have a clear field for the removal of the door blocking, a ticklish operation at best. Having satisfied to some extent our curiosity about the sealed doorway, we could now turn our attention to the rest of the chamber and make a more detailed examination of the objects which it contained. It was certainly an astounding experience. Here, packed tightly together in this little chamber, were scores of objects, 
any one of which would have filled us with excitement under ordinary circumstances, and been considered ample repayment for a full season's work. Some were of types well enough known to us, others were new and strange, and in some cases these were complete and perfect examples of objects whose appearance we had heretofore but guessed at from the evidence of tiny broken fragments found in other royal tombs. Nor was it merely from a point of view of quantity that the find was so amazing. The period to which the tomb belongs is in many respects the most interesting in the whole history of Egyptian art, and we were prepared for beautiful things. What we were not prepared for was the astonishing vitality and animation which characterized certain of the objects. It was a revelation to us of unsuspected possibilities in Egyptian art, and we realized, even in this hasty preliminary survey, that a study of the material would involve a modification, if not a complete revolution, of all our old ideas. That, however, is a matter for the future. We shall get a clearer estimate of exact artistic values when we have cleared the whole tomb and have the complete contents before us. One of the first things we noted in our survey was that all of the larger objects, and most of the smaller ones, were inscribed with the name of Tutankhamun. His, too, were the seals upon the innermost door, and therefore his, beyond any shadow of doubt, the mummy that ought to lie behind it. Next, while we were still excitedly calling each other from one object to another, came a new discovery. Peering beneath the southernmost of the three great couches, we noticed a small irregular hole in the wall. Here was yet another sealed doorway, and a plunderous hole, which, unlike the others, had never been repaired. Cautiously we crept under the couch and inserted our portable light, and there before us lay another chamber, rather smaller than the first, but even more crowded with objects. The state of this inner room, afterwards called the Annex, simply defies description. In the antechamber there had been some sort of an attempt to tidy up after the plunderer's visit, but here everything was in confusion, just as they had left it. Nor did it take much imagination to picture them at their work. One, there would probably not have been room for more than one, had crept into the chamber, and then hastily, but systematically, ransacked its entire contents, emptying boxes, throwing things aside, piling them one upon another, and occasionally passing objects through the hall to his companions for closer examination in the outer chamber. He had done his work just about as thoroughly as an earthquake. Not a single inch of floor space remains vacant, and it will be a matter of considerable difficulty, when the time for clearing comes, to know how to begin. So far we have not made any attempt to enter the chamber, but have contented ourselves with taking stock from outside. Beautiful things it contains, too, smaller than those in the antechamber for the most part, but many of them of exquisite workmanship. Several things remain in my mind particularly. A painted box, apparently quite as lovely as the one in the antechamber, a wonderful chair of ivory, gold, wood, and leather work, 
alabaster and faience vases of beautiful form, and a gaming board in carved and coloured ivory. I think the discovery of the second chamber, with its crowded contents, had a somewhat sobering effect upon us. Excitement had gripped us hitherto, and given us no pause for thought, but now for the first time we began to realise what a prodigious task we had in front of us, and what a responsibility it entailed. This was no ordinary find, to be disposed of in a normal season's work, nor was there any precedent to show us how to handle it. The thing was outside all experience, bewildering, and for the moment it seemed as though there were more to be done than any human agency could accomplish. Moreover, the extent of our discovery had taken us by surprise, and we were wholly unprepared to deal with the multitude of objects that lay before us, many in a perishable condition and needing careful preservative treatment before they could be touched. There were numberless things to be done before we could even begin the work of clearing. Vast stores of preservatives and packing material must be laid in, expert advice must be taken as to the best method of dealing with certain objects, provision must be made for a laboratory, some safe and sheltered spot in which the objects could be treated, catalogued and packed, a careful plan to scale must be made, and a complete photographic record taken while everything was still in position, a dark room must be contrived. These were but a few of the problems that confronted us. Clearly, the first thing to be done was to render the tomb safe against robbery. We could then with easy minds work out our plans, plans which we realized by this time would involve not one season only, but certainly two, and possibly three or four. We had our wooden grill at the entrance to the passage, but that was not enough, and I measured up the inner doorway for a gate of thick steel bars. Until we could get this made for us, and for this and for other reasons it was imperative for me to visit Cairo, we must go to the labour of filling in the tomb once more. Meanwhile, the news of the discovery had spread like wildfire, and all sorts of extraordinary and fanciful reports were going abroad concerning it, one story that found considerable credence among the natives being to the effect that three aeroplanes had landed in the valley and gone off to some destination unknown with loads of treasure. To overtake these rumours as far as possible, we decided on two things. First, to invite Lord Allenby and the various heads of the departments concerned to come and pay a visit to the tomb, and secondly, to send an authoritative account of the discovery to the Times. On the 29th, accordingly, we had an official opening of the tomb, at which were present Lady Allenby, Lord Allenby was unfortunately unable to leave Cairo, Abdel Aziz Bey Yehya, the Governor of the province, Mohammed Bey Fahmi, Mamur of the district, and a number of other Egyptian notables and officials, and on the 30th, Mr. Tottenham, adviser to the Ministry of Public Works, and Monsieur Pierre Lacot, director-general of the Service of Antiquities, who had been unable to be present on the previous day, made their official inspection. Mr. Merton, the Times correspondent, was also present at the official opening, 
and sent the dispatch which created so much excitement at home. On December 3rd, after closing up the entrance doorway with heavy timber, the tomb was filled to surface level. Lord Carnarvon and Lady Evelyn left on the 4th, on their way to England, to conclude various arrangements there, preparatory to returning later in the season, and on the 6th, leaving Calendar to watch over the tomb in my absence, I followed them to Cairo to make my purchases. My first care was the steel gate, and I ordered it the morning I arrived, under promise that it should be delivered within six days. The other purchases I took more leisurely, and a miscellaneous collection they were, including photographic material, chemicals, a motor car, packing boxes of every kind, with thirty-two bales of calico, more than a mile of wadding, and as much again of surgical bandages. Of these last two important items I was determined not to run short. While in Cairo I had time to take stock of the position, and it became more and more clear to me that assistance, and that on a big scale, was necessary if the work in the tomb was to be carried out in a satisfactory manner. The question was where to turn for this assistance. The first and pressing need was in photography, for nothing could be touched until a complete photographic record had been made, a task involving technical skill of the highest order. A day or two after I arrived in Cairo, I received a cable of congratulation from Mr. Lithgow, curator of the Egyptian Department of the Metropolitan Museum of Art New York, whose concession at Thebes ran in close proximity to our own, being only divided by the natural mountain wall, and in my reply I somewhat diffidently inquired whether it would be possible, for the immediate emergency at any rate, to secure the assistance of Mr. Harry Burton, their photographic expert. He promptly cabled back, and his cable ought to go on record as an example of disinterested scientific cooperation. Only too delighted to assist in any possible way. Please call on Burton and on any other members of our staff. This offer was subsequently most generously confirmed by the trustees and the director of the Metropolitan Museum, and on my return to Luxor I arranged with my friend Mr. Winlock, the director of the New York excavations on that concession, and who was to be the actual sufferer under the arrangement, not only that Mr. Burton should be transferred, but that Mr. Hall and Mr. Hauser, draftsmen to the expedition, should devote such of their time as might be necessary to make a large-scale drawing of the antechamber and its contents. Another member of the New York staff, Mr. Mace, director of their excavations on the pyramid field at Licht, was also available, and at Mr. Lithgow's suggestion, cabled, offering help. Thus, no fewer than four members of the New York staff were for whole or part-time associated in the work of the season. Without this generous help, it would have been impossible to tackle the enormous amount of work in front of us. Another piece of luck befell me in Cairo. Mr. Lucas, director of the chemical department of the Egyptian government, was taking three months' leave prior to retiring from the government on completion of service, and for this three months he generously offered to place his chemical knowledge at our disposal, an offer which, needless to say, 
I hastened to accept. That completed our regular working staff. In addition, Dr. Allen Gardiner kindly undertook to deal with any inscriptional material that might be found, and Professor Breasted, in a couple of visits, gave us much assistance in the difficult task of deciphering the historical significance of the seal impressions from the doors. By December 13th, the steel gate was finished, and I had completed my purchases. I returned to Luxor, and on the 15th everything arrived safely in the valley, delivery of the packages having been greatly expedited by the courtesy of the Egyptian state railway officials who permitted them to travel by express instead of on the slow freight train. On the 16th we opened up the tomb once more, and on the 17th the steel gate was set up in the door of the chamber, and we were ready to begin work. On the 18th work was actually begun, Burton making his first experiments in the antechamber, and Hall and Hauser making a start on their plan. Two days later Lucas arrived, and at once began experimenting on preservatives for the various classes of objects. On the 22nd, as the result of a good deal of clamour, permission to see the tomb was given to the press, both European and native, and the opportunity was also afforded to a certain number of the native notables of Luxor, who had been disappointed at not receiving an invitation to the official opening. It had only been possible on that occasion to invite a very limited number, owing to a difficulty of ensuring the safety of the objects in the very narrow space that was available. On the 25th, Mace arrived, and two days later, photographs and plans being sufficiently advanced, the first object was removed from the tomb. End of section 9